would you say that in general the university is an inclusive environment? No. 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 It's absolutely not. Hello and welcome to this episode of the podcast Decolonizing the University. Today's episode will go over the decolonization of the workforce of universities. My name is Fien Powells and I will be your host for the next couple of episodes. I make this podcast on behalf of the Learning Network on Decolonization of Ghent University. And furthermore, I also make this episode as an assignment for the course Community Service Learning. So, let's get into this episode. The subject of the decolonization of the workforce will be spread out over two podcast episodes, of which this one will be the first. In this episode, I'll have a conversation with Sibo Canobana. Sibo is a lecturer in social linguistics and postcolonial studies at the Faculty of Arts and Philosophy at Ghent University. Furthermore, he is also the author of the book Black Pages, Afro-Belgian Reflections on Flemish Postcolonial Literature. In this podcast, we'll first talk a bit about the diversity of staff. After that, we'll go into the effects of affirmative action and quotas. Furthermore, Sibo will enlighten us on the subject of systemic discrimination within the hiring process. And lastly, we'll conclude this episode with some probable solutions and Sibo's hopes and dreams for the future. But, you know, before we get into this interview with Sibo, I would first like to give some context to the making of the podcast surrounding the theme of the decolonization of the workforce. It is a very sensitive subject and not a lot of people were willing to talk about it because they feared they might say something wrong or controversial and they feared negative reactions from their network. Therefore, I would really like to thank the speakers in these episodes who are willing to talk about the subject. To talk about the subject of decolonizing the recruitment process, which is an important aspect of the workforce, I tried to contact the diversity coordinator at Ghent University. They were not willing to talk to me about the subject and referred me to other people. Then again, these people were also not comfortable speaking to me about the subject and they just referred me back to the original person that I've contacted. Since they were obviously the right choice for me to interview, I contacted them again to try and set up an interview, but they refused again. You know, this all really illustrates how hard this subject is to freely talk about. But even though it was hard finding speakers, I must say I'm very happy with the ones I did speak with. They gave me amazing insights on the subject and I hope you all will enjoy their insights as well. And on that note, let's start with the interview with Sibo Canabana. Okay, so welcome. So today we're going to start talking about um, decolonizing HR and decolonizing the hiring process. And my first question for you is that, do you think that a diverse academic staff is a requirement for a decolonial university? I think that it's a good thing to have a diverse staff. I would be careful to say that it is a requirement. You can see, for instance, in universities in Africa or in India that having all-black staff doesn't necessarily result in a university that is decolonized or that, is, that has a really diverse perspective on education and knowledge production. It doesn't mean that because you have other kinds of identities present that by definition it results in a in diversity policy. We have seen that in in history all the time. I mean we see that Boris Johnson has the most diverse K 
cabinet ever in UK history, that doesn't mean that you have a cabinet that is interested in social justice or decolonization or diversity policies. And as I said before, African universities may have staff that is completely black, but it stays elite staff that uses European frameworks as their point of reference, as their point of what is considered valuable and not valuable. So, so yes, I'm completely for a diverse staff. I believe it's definitely a way, but it's not the only way to achieve that kind of diversity. And would you say that it is possible for a university to be fully decolonized with a full white staff? I'm tempted to doubt that. It doesn't seem to be plausible. Mm. Because we live in a society where being white means something and has, has consequences in how you are in life, how you see things. So in that sense, I may contradict myself with what I just said. I do believe, but it's not necessarily so, but I do believe that if you are not normative, there is a good chance that you might see things differently, that you might have some sensitivities that are different to what uh, normalizing society expects from you. But again, this is not a guarantee. I mean, we see that in history, for instance. I'd like to tell you a little story uh, about, for instance, when we talk about the colonization of Congo by Belgium. Yes. It was the Congo Free State at first, until 1908. It was a private possession from Leopold II. And in 1905, there was Edie Morel, who made a scandal, who made public what was going on in the Congo, the atrocities that were committed. And Edie Morel is just a white guy, so you would say like he has had sensitivities. But there is a whole story of more than yeah, 15 years about of critique that emerged at first among African-American missionaries who were active in, in the Congo, black missionaries who may have more quickly have had the reaction that this situation is wrong. There's something fundamentally wrong about what is going on here. A reaction that might have been more difficult, but that doesn't mean impossible, but more difficult for within the ideology in which they were working. Then a follow-up question that stays in that realm. Do you think that right now universities are diverse enough or have a diverse enough staff and diverse enough students to really get to that decolonized being? Mm -hmm. Do you think that they need more or that they need more structures and processes? I mean, <laughs> I studied in the 90s, to be clear. I came to university to Ghent in 1994 for the first time and I was in an auditorium with a thousand students, I was like the only person of color, and that is basically unchanged in, mm -hmm. the, in these uh, 25 yeah. years. While you see that the streets have changed, while you see that a lot of things have changed, but the university stays a very elite, a very white institution. And I mean white, not in the sense of skin color, but in the sense of an ideology mm -hmm. of what is considered what is considered rational, what is considered irrational, what is considered valuable, what is considered knowledge. All these expectations and all these structuring and categorizing of the world. Yeah, no, I completely understand. So we're talking about that stuff 
should be more diverse mm -hmm. and that, that's a good thing for the university mm -hmm. it might not make it fully decolonized but it does help so how would you how would you say we achieve that like what is your opinion on for example establishing quotas based on ethnicity or based on gender or, or any kind of diversity mm -hmm. would you feel that would help within bringing diversity up in the university mm -hmm. Well, I'm not too much a fan of quotas, mm -hmm. but then sometimes I think quotas are some kind of necessary evil that should be temporary, uh, that should have an end goal, that you cannot see it as a structural measure, I think. Mm -hmm. Because even if we succeed in, in having um, a balanced kind of diversity within staff, you we will see in 20, 30 years that other groups will be excluded from, from, from the system that we established mm -hmm. in order to have a kind of diversity that is based on a specific kind of expectations and categorization that are currently valid mm -hmm. but may not be valid anymore in 30 years' time. Well, let me give a quick example. I mean, it's maybe a dangerous example. Let's mm -hmm. talk about the Jews, right? I mean, there were quotas, negative quotas, in the early 20th century about acceptance of Jewish people in American universities. So, not if you were a Jew, you were you could be excluded because you were a Jew. So, okay, these quotas have been abolished, but if we certainly in, in, in the most part of our history have been marginalized, exploited, uh, excluded. I mean, everything that you can imagine has been done to these people. So you you could count them. I don't know if it's a valid category today, but you could say like, yeah, I mean, we're diverse. We have that many Jewish people, and Jewish people are very well represented in American universities today. Which is not, I don't consider that a problem, right? But I just <laughs> see that as how are we going to categorize? How are we going to count? And what are we going to consider? Because there's another perverse effect which I experienced myself in a society that doesn't even have official affirmative action, where people believe that there is some kind of affirmative action. My second job, I, I worked briefly for an American company just after my graduation, my master's. But then I started to work for a state agency for the, for the VDAB, which is the Flemish Agency for Employment. Mm -hmm. And I remember my first day at work, so I had to do tests to get in. It was a pretty difficult process mm -hmm. to get in and to become a civil servant in that organization. Mm -hmm. So I had to do all the tests because I also had to show that I could teach English and I could teach French and I could teach Dutch. So it was a specific profile that mm -hmm. it really needed. And I, I applied, I did the psychological tests. I, did, I mean, I did everything. And then on my first day at work, there is a new colleague telling me just, I mean, with a smile, like, just during your lunch break, like, yeah, I'm sure they hired you because you are not white. And I was like, I well, I said, I hope not, yeah. because <laughs> I don't think I will be able to, to stay a long time if that would be the case. <laughs> and as far as I know, I just did all the tests that mm -hmm. I had to do. And as far as I know, there is no affirmative action, affirmative action policy uh, in this organization. But yeah, maybe, maybe, but I hope it's not the only reason why they hired me. But you see what kind of effect it has mm -hmm. on how people perceive. So actually it devalues me. If there would be an affir affirmative action in the organization and I get hired, people would think that I'm not really the best option. I'm just there because, and that's of course, we know 
that yeah. affirmative action says, no, no, if you have two, two candidates who are equally yeah. strong, <laughs> you take the one that is least well represented in the group. So it can also be a white person if the group is all black and, and vice versa. Yeah. So, so we know that. But we live in a racist society that reads these things in racist ways and that thus concludes that, well, that, that seeks for confirmation of their own bias in the new in the new procedures, and you you, you end up with well with not too much progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. With it might work yeah. in the short term, but there is another perverse effect, yeah. which is also active right now, and that is, mm-hmm. for instance, quotas. When I see at the university, for instance, we have these different commissions and working groups and steering groups. I mean, all these different meetings, actually, that, that, that they come back on a regular basis and where decisions are made. And in these meetings, there is also a requirement to have at least one-third of the other sex. So one, if there two-thirds of men and one third, at least one-third mm-hmm. of women has to be represented in that, in that commission. But in a lot of these commissions, it has to be professors. And within the professors, women are underrepresented. Mm-hmm. So as a result, women are much more required to sit in these commissions. Mm-hmm. As a result, they have much less time to do research, much less time to, to, to take care of education, so they are on, under much more pressure. So it has a perverse effect that you didn't really want. You wanted more female representation. Mm-hmm. But it ends up with, with putting all the pressure on the few women that made it at mm-hmm. the top. And you see the same thing going on with, well, with people with my background, people uh, with, with, with racialized people. That's very interesting. Thank you. So, within the recruitment process, would you say that there is inherent or systemic discrimination? Well, the quick answer is yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it needs to be... Well, I have to explain mm-hmm. that. So, the systemic discrimination happens on different levels. Mm-hmm. Maybe the first and easiest level to, to, to show is what we expect from candidates. Mm-hmm. What they have to do during the recruitment versus what they have to do on the job. There is a huge mis- mismatch there mm-hmm. between, actually, whatever the job you have to do, you have to be able to sell yourself in an eloquent way in front of people who are looking at you. So you have to deal with that stress. You have to perform. You have to be a good actor. But most jobs don't really expect from you, once you went through that test, to do that again. And actually, you're not even expected to... Yeah, you're not expected. It's not part of the job profile. It's part of the procedure. Mm-hmm. There are other things going on, and when I think about psychotechnical tests, mm-hmm. where people with specific kinds of skills or talents are selected mm-hmm. by these tests. And even for jobs where you are not really necessarily required to have the skills that are reflected in these tests. Moreover, psychotechnical text, th- tests are like, like IQ tests. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of, well, th- there is at least a lot of doubt whether people who fail on these tests really have 
a failing intelligence or a failing way of being logical. It's just a way to try to map mm -hmm. if someone can reason in logical ways. But it's not the only way. But it's the only tool that we use. Mm -hmm. So that, that, is, uh, that is definitely, I mean, on, on the first level. Then on the second level, there is bias. We are all, mm -hmm. we are all biased. So we, we, we try to avoid that by <clears throat> anonymizing CVs so that recruiters uh, don't know whether the person well, is even female, male, or what the background is, or whatever, so the identity is not there. So that, that already helps, but then you have the interviews where you always have the bias, you always have only one chance to, have a, to make a first impression, and then again you fall into that, mm -hmm. that problem that you have to make a first impression, and when you're a racialized individual, or if you're a woman, or if you're a feminized person, you know that you are judged much harder mm -hmm. than anyone else. So you need to be on the top of your game to be confident enough. I mean, you live in a society that reminds you constantly that you shouldn't really be confident, that, that you are actually inferior to the norm. So you need a lot of other privileges in order to compensate mm -hmm. that pressure that you experience from society. And which is something, and I, and I, don't, I don't want to blame white uh, cisgender men mm -hmm. for being what they are, but they have to deal much less with these questions about who they are in the society. Of course, they might. I mean, th there might be other things mm -hmm. like class, like accent, like like, I don't know, your education, where you grew up. I mean, there are different reasons why white men uh, may have, may feel marginalized in this society. I don't want to see them as a group, but I just want to, to, to point at, at the normative points of reference that are at play. And then there is the discrimination. Once you're hired, what, what happens? And if you... Uh, I go back to my story mm -hmm. about, okay, I passed the test, I did it, then I come in and then I'm confronted with colleagues who are actually doubting whether I have the right profile mm -hmm. and the skills, even if I did everything like everybody else. So you have to deal with that and that is up to you to deal with that. There is no, there's no organization that says like, we gonna deal with that for mm -hmm. you. And when you tell that story, people are like, yeah, but I mean, <clears throat> so it's up to the victim to deal with, uh, with the oppression. And that, pff, that makes it, <laughs> I mean, that means that there are there are like at least three levels where you can fall out or where you can not succeed to be to be to be part of that new organization. So yeah, yeah. So there's that. That's how I would uh, describe the systemic mm -hmm. uh, discrimination that is at play. And I, I guess now you're going to ask me. So what is the solution? How can we <laughs> overcome this? I was thinking about asking that. But I was also thinking about a solution that already exists. It's diversity coordinators that work with the university and that work with HR. Do you think that these people help, uh, even if sometimes they are white people? Would you say that it is something, but it's not the solution? I definitely don't see it as the solution, mm -hmm. but... I worked as a diversity worker for, for a long time too mm -hmm. and I know that I succeeded to make a difference for a few people. I didn't really change the system though, mm -hmm. but I managed to, to really make a difference for mm -hmm. a few individuals. 
who, who claim that they wouldn't have succeeded without my help. I don't know, maybe that's not true, but at least that's how they perceive it. I think that, I mean, diversity workers are, to me, kind of like rescue workers. Mm -hmm. They are the Red Cross, they are Médecins Sans Frontières. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't really change a thing, right? It's, I, mean, I mean, I'm not against the Red Cross mm -hmm. going to Sudan trying to help people. Yeah. But <laughs> this is not really changing anything. No, it doesn't change yeah. the fact that people are still wounded even though you can try to fix them, heal them. Exactly. Yeah. And you don't look at the source of the problem. You look mm -hmm. at the victims and you try to... Yeah, to, to, to. So mm -hmm. again, so it's valuable work. It's humanitarian work is mm -hmm. valuable, yeah. but I wouldn't consider it as a solution, rather as trying to deal with 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 an extreme situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that is how I see diversity work in universities too. They are not trying to change. I mean, it's not that they are not trying to change. Yeah. They are trying, but it's really difficult and it's nearly impossible. And moreover, they, they are also often used or weaponized mm -hmm. as look we are doing diversity we are on the right track because we have hired that person or these few person but people and they are taking care of the problem of diversity mm -hmm. so so that, that that will be solved and that's that that is also a way to for for a lot of mm -hmm. work floors to actually outsource the problem and say like, oh, we have a diversity problem, so that's for the diversity coordinator. We are not going to solve this problem. I mean, we cannot solve this problem. And by the way, I am white, so I cannot solve this problem. So we're just going to ask the diversity coordinator. And I mean, there is a history all over the world of diversity coordinators being completely burned out because they, are, they, they have a, a mandate that is across the whole university, whether it's education, research, administration, everywhere they have to, to have their influence, and that's just mission impossible, even if you have five, six, yeah. seven diversity workers. So, so they, they just have to focus on trying to, I mean, they, they, maybe a better comparison was, was the, the, the firefighters, mm -hmm. to, to trying to fight the fire, but not really changing something in, in, in the structures. Okay, and just to come back to that solution, mm -hmm. do you think there is one? Yes and no, there are different mm -hmm ways of thinking about this. But I think that universities worldwide have universal pretensions mm -hmm. uh, and want to be cosmopolitan. Internationalization is, is one example. And rather than just having, like Sarah Ahmed says, hiring diversity workers and uh, having them writing up a plan or having some kind of, I don't know, some kind of document, a white paper, no pun intended, and, and considering that, okay, look, because we have this white paper, we are on, right, on the right track, we are diversity friendly and stuff like that. So Sarah Ahmed has a very pertinent uh, critique on, on, on that kind of, of, of way of trying to, to avoid, mm -hmm. I mean, trying to change nothing by just having these diversity workers having, writing up these documents. I would think about the university as a, as a really international organization. And I would think about, I mean, that's on the level of internationalization. I think that, I mean, we have these work relationships with universities in the global south and stuff like that. I think that it can be much bolder. It can go much further. And even if we have 
higher institutional requirements that produce the fact that there are more Western scholars going to the South and vice versa, I think that we have to be disobedient on that level and we have just to, to, to do things that are, yeah, that are not according to these mm -hmm. requirements so that more people from the Global South can come here. So that idea, that idea that they will stay here, I mean, that's only because, anyway, that's another, another <laughs> yeah. but I, I don't believe, believe that. But then, that, that would be one thing on the international, global level. But then, on the other level, I think that we need to, when I think about hiring procedures, mm -hmm. so let's go back to yeah. the higher diversity, which I think is valuable, but I don't believe it is the solution, but it is one of the tracks that we have to follow, is to, to have completely different ways of thinking about how we hire someone. And that doesn't mean more commissions and more reunions and more meetings. It means taking risks. Mm -hmm. It means hiring people because of their life trajectory because of what they did and not what they can do on that day or in that test. And I think everything should go slower. Mm -hmm. Should be we shouldn't be in the rat race. We should go slow. That would be better, definitely. <laughs> and so hiring people and having them, I don't know, six months, a year, and based on that, I mean I have an anecdote from fifteen years ago or something that was like a guy from Syria. Who, who did the perfect trajectory, mm -hmm. learned Dutch, I mean, like the perfect migrant, right? Yeah. Finds a job at, at the library at the university. But it's, it's, it's a contract where he, uh, someone is on leave and oh, he, yeah, can, yeah. he can take that contract. So it's a temporary contract. Yeah. But then the contract, I mean, the person who's on leave will not come back. So the contract becomes, the, there is a job, mm -hmm. a job offering that, but the job offering has to be opened and anybody should be able to apply for the job. Although he's doing that job, I think at that point, yeah. for more than a year and everybody is satisfied about what yeah. he does. But you have to do the psychotechnical tests, you have to do the interviews, da 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 da, -da and it's outsourced, it's by human resources yeah, recruitment yeah. company and he's not selected. Somebody else is selected, of course a white person, and na na na. And then you think like, what the hell? Yeah. And actually everybody <laughs> thinks what the hell at that point. So you, you have like an extreme example mm -hmm. where even the colleagues are thinking like, why aren't we hiring him? I mean, he yeah. was, he, he had the experience. <laughs> so, oh yeah, and that's, then, that's how the system works. Yeah. And so the system rejects him, even if the colleagues do not want to reject him. Why did I, why am I telling this story? about the solution. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that we really need to, to, to have a much more organic, much more mm -hmm. human-oriented way of thinking about recruitment. Yeah. Okay, so going with that, within the paper Power in Higher Education that you wrote, you mentioned that the system does not need to be overthrown, but that a gradual change and that an increased focus on context and history might be. How do you see that within the context of, of hiring um, diverse staff and, and the decolonization of the hiring process? Well, when I, when I talk about history, to me it is 
super important. I think that's part of the decolonial perspective is to take history into account in everything mm -hmm. that we see today and to understand that our colonial history has had a major impact on the social structures as they exist today. And that in order to, <clears throat> to challenge these uh, social structures, we need to know our history and we need to know where these structures come mm -hmm. from. And in that sense, the gradual change can only be there if anyone, I mean, if everyone, whether you're an engineering student or a literature student, that you know where your discipline is coming from, what kind of interest it has served throughout history and is still serving today. And that you have to realize that, that higher education works for the interests of the elites mm -hmm. and of the big companies. But then big companies are also, like the university, some kind of anonymous entity. Mm -hmm. Nobody really owns it. We all own it. I mean, mm -hmm. so, so who is responsible here? Yeah, we're all responsible. So nobody is responsible. And, and so I, I believe that that gradual change is, I think that, that the university is, is an emblematic place where you could start with trying to decolonize. And I mean, I really mean to change the way that we think about what it is to be a human in the world. Okay, yeah, super interesting. So, something different. In your research on race at work with the security guards, it can be seen that you say that there are racialized forces at play of using ethnicity as an asset in the recruitment process of security guards. Do you think that these same positive or maybe negative forces are at play in the academic recruitment process? Yeah, I'm def I definitely think so. Yeah, no, it's not a problem of the academic world specifically, but it's, it's, it's definitely, and that brings me to ideological whiteness, mm -hmm. to the fact that we believe that everything that we connect to whiteness is superior, in the sense that it is, it, whiteness is a sign, and I'm not only talking, I mean, whiteness depends on the way you speak, the way you wear your clothes, the way you act, uh, your class to whiteness implies middle class. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah. if you're a working class white person, you're a little bit less white, let's say. And if you're a white person who has a lot of friends of color or hangs out, I mean, your whiteness becomes more doubtful. And the other way around, a black person can get access to elite structures and thus become whitish. Right. A pale skin in that context is never sufficient nor necessary to become white. Mm -hmm. But it never hurts. It's never a bad thing. Dark skin, on the other hand, you can become white with a dark skin, mm -hmm. but it might hurt. There might be situations where people don't know you, where they don't know your background, and when you're not in your circle of elite friends, you might be perceived as working class and as a threat to society. That's what skin color does. Mm -hmm. But of course, you need so much more. Otherwise, you wouldn't have pretty Patel, etc. So you need much more than skin color. Skin color is just some kind of legacy that we inherited from the 19th century and that is still at play, but that is definitely not necessary nor sufficient. Okay, so let's go back to mm -hmm. whiteness. So yeah, we make these associations 
with whiteness where as a person of color you can compensate by style and language and different other strategies you can compensate your dark skin and become white and thus creating a connotation that you are a rational person you are a disciplined person you are a person who, who appreciates order you are a person that is trustworthy you are reasonable you are clean etc while not being white has the association of irrational, emotional, untrustworthy, dirty, spontaneous, that might be something positive, but aggressive, all these connotations. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no aggressive black people. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that there, are, that, that, all, that there are no rational white people. No, it's just about the associations that we mm-hmm. make and that we assume things. And I think a film like American Psycho, that is not about race, illustrates perfectly that a white man in suit and tie, who speaks a specific kind of language and has a specific style, is trusted by society. And, and that is going on in the recruitment process. And, and, and it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword, because mm-hmm. it's not only the fact that recruiters assume that a specific person may have specific skills in the in the context of the security guards it was <clears throat> about well about specifically the assumption that criminals are people who are a threat to society or by definition people of color mm-hmm. so if you have security guards of color they may be able to communicate better with these other people mm-hmm. of color. So that also assumes that people of color is some kind of monolithic, homogenous yeah. group of people who are acting and thinking all the same way. That is one element from the structures, from the, let's say the organization, the company, the, the, the university that recruits. But then you have on the other side, the people themselves who are living in that society where they are watching films, looking at the news, I mean, mm-hmm. having all these images that are influencing that worldview, and there too, and that's what my research shows, is that also people of color reproduce these ideological whiteness. And even when they are victims of that ideological whiteness, even among, among these security guards who are some kind of walking paradox, and it's also their job is also a walking paradox, because they have to, be, they have, to have these soft skills, of good communication skills, mm-hmm. they have to be welcoming and customer-friendly and all these, I mean, security as a customer service. Mm-hmm. At the same time, they have to be also representative of repression mm-hmm. and uh, of discipline and, and these things. So they, and they have to bridge that impossible gap with their bodies, with their racialized bodies. So, so it is, the, 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 the double-edged sword is that, that, that it's not just a system that is racist, but we are also part of the system. So there is no system without people in that system and we are all participating to it. And on the other hand, you have organizations and universities that are increasingly reproducing a diversity discourse. I mean, putting people of color on their posters, really like propagating that, I mean, everybody's United Colors mm-hmm. of Benetton right now. And, but in practice, yeah. they still exclude. And they, they, of course, they have these few people that are, we, and, and their background, their identity is weaponized in order to legitimize their own, their, or in order to, sh- to present uh, a diversity-friendly company. Yeah, super interesting. So, 
I mean, we've talked about uh, racism and, and racialized assets and, and higher education and stuff like that. So to conclude this talk, actually, I just have one more question. What are your hopes and expectations regarding the future of academia, like regarding diversity and decolonization? Yeah, so, so I think I think that, that I have the pretense to think that higher education is really an important place to even start a conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think that we are starting a conversation. I don't know if there will be reactionary consequences that will lead us to a more conservative or a society. It is possible, but I think we are... There is no way back, really. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. That was very interesting. To summarize, in this episode, we talked about CBO's views on the decolonization of the university's workforce. In this interview, we talked about quotas. This is a very nuanced subject of which the last is not yet set. In the next episode, with Professor Jan Orbi and Sami Zemni, we will go further into the discussion of quotas within the university's workforce. In this interview, we mainly got the theoretical background on the subject of decolonization of the workforce, together with Sibos' own experiences. In the next episode, we will delve further into the subject and we will talk to two professors, who will talk about their concrete interpretation of this subject as applied to their experiences within their departments. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope to see you again at the next.